Escape Pod 143 January 31st, 2008 Today's story, Flaming Marshmallow and Other Deaths, by Camille Alexa Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, I'm Steve Ely. We have a fun story this week with a protagonist that some of you will really relate to. It didn't warrant an upfront warning, but I'll give one now. If you really don't want to remember your high school days, this piece may be somewhat traumatic. I've talked a fair bit in past episodes about the importance of continuing to reach new audiences with SF. There's the truism that the golden age of science fiction is 13. And here's something that's been bothering me a little bit. I actually have conflicting opinions about this. I went to Borders this past weekend. My wife wanted the next novel in this young adult series she's been reading, Scott Westerfield's Uglies series. These look like really good books, a future setting with teenage characters. I'm looking forward to reading them when she's done. And I was delighted to see that this particular Borders had an entire section devoted to adolescent science fiction and fantasy. This is good news. Teens are clearly reading, they're excited about the genre, there's a lot of stuff out there for them. Except that it was all certainly more than 90% of it, fantasy. I'm not even talking about what's good and what isn't good, I'm just talking about volume. Now, I'm not one to criticize if fantasy is what people want to read. I love it myself. And Harry Potter's clearly had a transformative effect on the industry. But is there really no room at all at that end of the market for science fiction? For exciting the next generation about what could happen in our world? I'm wondering if we're past the era of Heinlein juveniles and A Wrinkle in Time and the other SF that took me as a kid. Come to think of it, most of what I was reading weren't young adult novels anyway. They were whatever SF I could get my hands on. If my parents knew what was in those John Varley novels, I'd have been in trouble. And maybe that's what younger readers are doing too. But I'm a little concerned. I think there's space for more SF at that end of the bookshelf. For the sake of the next science fiction readers and also because I'd like to read some more of it myself. So, this week's story is Flaming Marshmallow and Other Deaths by Camille Alexa. Miss Alexa lives in Portland, Oregon, and has over a dozen short stories and poems in print. This story will appear in an upcoming print anthology called Machine of Death, edited by Ryan North, Matthew Bernardo, and David Malkey. After you hear this story, you should have a good grasp of the anthology's concept. The story is read for us by Danny Cutler of the Audio Addicts Audio Drama Community and the Truth Seekers Political Podcast. She doesn't know this yet, but the closer we get to Super Tuesday, the more attention I pay to Danny's Twitter posts to see what's really going on between the candidates. You can find the Truth Seekers Podcast at audioaddict.libsyn.com. So don't spend your whole lunch hour looking for an empty seat at a table. It's story time. Flaming Marshmallow and Other Deaths by Camille Alexa. I'm so freaking excited, I can hardly stand it. Tomorrow. Tomorrow is my birthday. The birthday. The birthday everybody waits and waits for, and until you get there, you just hate that all your old friends already got theirs, and you're the only one without it yet, and sometimes you think, holy freaking F, I'm never going to turn 16. But then you do. At first, I'm afraid I won't be able to sleep. I turn off the light. But after lying in the dark for half an hour, I turn it back on. I look at the calendar hanging on the wall above my bed. I reach up, 
lift it off its nail with one hand and snuggle back under the covers, taking the calendar with me and running a finger over all the red X's marked over the days leading up to this one. It's a little cold out, and the last thing in the universe I want to do is catch it up in cold the week of my birthday, so I snuggle down into the warmth of my flannel sheets even more. I know there's going to be parties this weekend, and I'm going to want to go. This is what I've been waiting for all these months. All these years, I guess. Though before my friends started getting theirs, it didn't seem like such a big deal. We were all no-nos then. Tomorrow, I'm finally going to feel like I belong. Tomorrow, I'm going to find out how I die. Carolyn! Yo, girl, wait up! At the sound of my name, I turn around. It's Patrice. I can see her bounding up across the commons toward me. Her super long hair is braided today, and as she runs, it whips around at the sides of her head like two angry red snakes with ribbons tied to their tails. Hey, Patrice, I say, and clutch my books closer to my chest. I try to walk a little faster, thinking maybe she'll get the hint. She doesn't. Today's a big day, huh? She says. I nod. She turns her head away and bites her lip. Lucky, she says. I shrug, speed up even more. It's not my problem. She's one of the smartest kids in our class, and they moved her up a grade like four years ago. It's not my fault. She's going to be a no-no for another whole year. Out of the corner of my eye, I can see Brad Binder. He is so effing cool. A burner, they say. That's hot, I think. And then I laugh to myself. What's so funny? asked Patrice. We're at my locker, so I balance my books on my knee with one hand while I fumble my combo lock with the other. I pretend I don't hear her. But she sees me flicking sly glances Brad Binder's direction. Not him, she says, rolling her eyes. You can't be serious. Shh! I try to shut her up. I wish I had some kind of freaking superpower or something. I wish I could just concentrate really hard and make her go away. Brad Binder pulls his letter jacket out of his locker, which is so close to mine, three other girls have asked to trade lockers with me. He shrugs his perfect, so effing perfect, shoulders into his jacket, and takes out just a notebook with a pencil shoved in its rings. No computer, no books, no nothing. God, that's so effing cool. Just like a burner. As Brad walks away, Patrice fixes me with one of those stares of hers. He's not that great, you know. I heard he kisses like a dead lizard. I guess you'd know, I almost say. But I stop myself. I don't want to stoop to her level, be so childish. I'm 16 today, and after school, my dad's taking me to the mall to get that slip of paper, and then I'll know where I really belong. So I shrug again instead, let it slide off me like egg off Teflon. He's a burner, I say. They're pretty cool. Patrice snorts. <laughs> you know what his slip said? Death by flaming marshmallow. That doesn't sound like a real burner cause of death to me, no matter what he says. He should probably be hanging out with the chokers instead. You wouldn't think he was so tough then. I've had enough of Patrice. You wouldn't understand, I tell her, and I walk away, toward geometry class. Maybe Cindy Marshall will be nice to me today, it being so close to me getting my C of D slip. Maybe I'll end up being a crasher, like her. If only. I'm almost late getting to class. Mrs. Tharple looks at me extra sour, but I don't give a flying F. I slide into my seat, right as the bell rings, and catch Cindy Marshall's eye. I smile. Don't even look at me, you no-no, she says to me. Low under her breath as Mrs. Tharple starts handing out our pop quiz. The two other girls behind her snicker. I can feel their eyes darting against my skin, sharp like the teeth of weasels. It's my birthday, I say. She turns in her seat and looks at me full on. I try to understand the look in her eyes, but I can't. 
I feel like it's something really obvious. Like she's trying to tell me something so, so, so obvious. I should already know it. I feel really stupid. Mrs. Tharple walks between us, places our blank quizzes face up on the desks in front of us, glides on by to the next row and toward the front of the room again. I look down at my geometry quiz, try to concentrate, try to ignore the heat in my cheeks and the tips of my ears and on the back of my neck. Hey, you, hisses Cindy Marshall. I look up. So did you get your slip yet? I shake my head. After school, I tell her. She narrows her eyes. I can sense the other girls, crashers both, also watching me. But I play it cool, I hope. She nods. If you get your C of D and it's crashing, anything, plane, car, bike, hot freaking air balloon, whatever, you come talk to me again, tomorrow. I have to bite the insides of my cheeks to keep from smiling. I try to look like this isn't the best offer I've got all morning. I try to look tough. I want to be crasher material. I really do. Tomorrow, I say, and she nods again, once. Not a one of those girls acknowledges my existence the entire rest of class, but I don't care. Everything will be different tomorrow. Tomorrow, my life can begin. Lunch isn't what I'd hoped for. I've spent all this time counting down to my birthday, thinking, this is the day everything changes. But it isn't. I don't feel like a no-no anymore, even though technically I don't actually know. I'm under 18, so I have to have my parent or legal guardian with me to get my slip. If I could've, I would've ditched lunch today, gone to the mall, gotten the whole thing over with. Instead, I have to wait for my dad to get off work. It's so unfair. So, even if I get my slip tonight, nobody but me is going to know my cause of death until tomorrow. Well, my parents will know, and my little brother, I guess. And I'm sure I could call Patrice and tell her, but why? After tomorrow, I'll have new friends to hang out with. But for today, I'm still stuck in Nonoville. I grab my tray and slide onto the bench at the end of the table. Patrice waves me down further toward her end, but I pretend I don't see her. I line up my eight extra packets of mustard and start tearing the corners off one by one, slowly squeezing out the sharp yellow and gooping it all over the top of my synthesized proteins and pressed vegetable shapes. Covertly, I scan the room, wondering, fantasizing about where I might be allowed to sit tomorrow. Who's going to welcome me with open arms? It all depends on my C of D. A ruckus is going on over in the corner. Of course, it's the burner kids cracking each other up, starting a food fight. The burners, the drowners, the crashers, the live wires, and the fallers. All the violent accidentals. They sit in mingled clumps along the two tables in the corner. That's the coolest corner. And I'm pretty sure I'll get to sit there tomorrow, or at least close. The next couple tables out wouldn't be so bad. You've got the medheads and the sharpies and the bullets. Mostly malpractice and murder, right? Though some kids sneak in there who should probably be over with the suicides. I can see those from here, all dressed in black and with pale faces. They look like a bunch of crows pecking at their food. Just please don't let me be at one of the last two tables. Sickness and old age. Ugh. They look boring even eating lunch. That would be my C of D if I was forced to sit at that table, bored to death. Happy birthday, Carolyn. I'm so startled. I squeeze a mustard packet too hard and it squirts all down the front of my dress. I start to dab it with a napkin, but I'm just turning bitter yellow clumps into bitter yellow smears. I'm, I'm so sorry, Carolyn. F. I, I, I look up into Jamie's face. We used to be friends a long, long time ago. He just lives down the street and we used to ride bikes together every single day. 
I can still taste the sun and summer dust on my tongue, just looking at him. We stopped hanging out when his parents joined the Anti-MOD League. Sometimes, on the way home from school, I see his mom standing out in front of the mall with her place card and her sandwich board. Lives are for living, say her signs some days. Others, people against machines of death. Or even, don't ask, don't know. You have a choice. Jamie's almost 18, and he's still a no-no. I'd just die if that were me. I'd just die. It's okay, Jamie, I tell him. Don't worry about it. He has a couple napkins in his hands, and he's dipping them in his water and holding them out to me. He started to dab one on my breast, but figured out in time it probably wouldn't be such a good idea. I try to stifle a sudden memory of me and him kissing behind the convenience store dumpster. I was probably about 12 or 13, and he was 14 or so, right before his parents joined the league. I remember he tasted like strawberries. I hope Jamie doesn't see my ears and neck turn red. He's one of the few people who knows me too well for me to hide it. Your mom picking you up after school? He asks. I keep dabbing, shake my head. My dad. He nods. He's watching the motions of my hands as I rub the damp napkins on my lap, on the fabric stretched across my ribs, but he's not really seeing me. I'm sorry, he says again, and I don't think he's talking about the mustard. By the time Dad picks me up, I'm mentally exhausted. He kisses the top of my head when I get into the car. Hey, kid, happy special day. Thanks. I throw my stuff in the back seat and fasten my lap belt. Dad's just sitting there with a loppy-sided smile on his face. You want to go get an ice cream first or something, he says. You want pizza? A movie? How can he be so freaking clueless? I want to tell him what a moron he's being, but when I look at him, something feels like it slips sideways in my stomach. For the first time, I'm looking at the 40-something man with the glasses and the stubbled cheeks and the ugly sweater, and I don't see my dad. I mean, yes, of course I see my dad, the middle-aged med-head C of D, accidental overdose, with the over-expensive house and the boring job and the two kids and last year's last year's car, bought cheap with high mileage from a rental fleet. But I also see a guy. I see a guy who loves me so much, he can't even put it into words. It never occurred to me to think this might be a big deal for him, the day I get my slip. He looks tired, I think. More tired than usual. I reach out and put my hand on his, where it's resting on the steering wheel. Sure, Dad, I say. Whatever you want. He covers my hand with his other one, so it's kind of like a hand sandwich, my fingers and knuckles pressed between two layers of his. His eyes look a little bright for a second, but I decide it's only my imagination as he places my hand back in my own lap and starts the car and pulls out from the curb. I watch the school get smaller and smaller in the side mirror as we drive away. I finish off the last of my ice cream cone, and so does Dad. We wipe our sticky fingers on the wet wipes and throw those away, and I get up from our food court table and gather all my bags as I stand. Dad's bought me a new pair of shoes, two new books, and a hat he says I look great in, but which I know I'll never, ever wear again in a million billion. All I'm missing is the partridge in a pear tree. So, what next, birthday girl? Need some new gloves? Music? You used to love the music store. He's walking over to the mall directory, studying the list of stores. I walk up to him, set down my bags of books and shoes, and touch his arm. Dad, I say, it's time. He doesn't look at me right away. He takes off his glasses and starts to clean them on the edge of his sweater. I can see he's just making them all linty and smeary, 
so I take them from him and clean them on the inside hem of my dress instead. When I hand them back, they're considerably cleaner, and I pick up my bags and start walking the direction of the slip kiosk. I don't have to look up the location of the mall directory. I know exactly where it is. There's not a 15-year-old in the country who doesn't know the location of her nearest machine. I know its hours of operation, regular mall open hours, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m., and I know how much it costs, $19.95 plus tax. I even know the brand, Deth Mat by Digco. We give the same results for less. The only thing I don't know is what's going to be on that strip of paper when it scrolls out of that slot. It's getting kind of late, and the mall's going to close soon. Most of the stores are empty. It's a school night, so nobody my age is around. It's mostly straggly-haired moms pushing heavy strollers and tired-looking shop clerks with achy feet. The machine kiosk is in a darkish corner over by the restrooms. The janitor has the door propped open to the ladies, and even though I kind of have to go, I'm not about to brave the janitor in his stinky mop. Besides, I don't want to put this off any more. I need to know. Dad pauses when we get to the machine. He fumbles with his wallet, pulls out his identity and credit cards. He clears his throat, but doesn't say anything and doesn't look at me. I thought Dad's hand shook a little when he slid his cards into the proper slots and keyed in his and my social security numbers and other information, but I'm sure I was imagining things. It was probably just my brain buzzing. That's what it feels like inside my head right now. Like all the curves and loops and folds of my brain are buzzing with tiny bees or maybe electric currents. I guess brains are, after all, though, filled with electric currents, that is, not tiny bees. The machine's green light comes on, and an arrow points to the small, shiny, self-cleaning divot in the otherwise dull metal. I set my bags down at my feet, slowly reach one finger toward the indention. Carolyn. I jump, look up into Dad's face. He pushes his glasses back on the bridge of his nose, fumbles it a little, blinks. Um... For an extra $5, it will tell you your blood type, your glucose levels, and whether or not you're pregnant. He points to the list printed on the machine's face. Then he frowns, distracted. Hey, there's no way you might be pregnant, is there? I close the tidy distance between us and wrap my arms around his waist. He hugs me back, and for a second, as I breathe in the warm, fuggy sweater dadness of him, I feel like the most precious and important thing in the universe. Without letting go of Dad or giving him any warning, I reach behind him and jab my finger into the shiny divot. Dad flinches and presses my face closer to his chest. A tiny slicing pain flits across my finger, then numbness as the machine sprays its disinfectant. I pull back from Dad, and he clears his throat and lets me go. The machine spits out Dad's two cards from their slots, and my slip scrolls out from the single slot below. Dad and I both reach for it, but when I freeze, he pulls back. I've got to do this, and he knows it. He plucks his plastic from the machine and slides the cards into his wallet while I uncurl my slip and read. I read it three times. Four times. I'm on my fifth when Dad, unable to contain himself, gently tugs the paper from my stiff finger and reads aloud. Death by Millennium Space Entropy, he says. But... Dad wraps both his arms around me and swings me up into the air like he hasn't done since I was a very, very little girl. I keep my arms stiff, but my legs and body go limp, and Dad twirls me in a circle, laughing, joyous. He finally sets me down, and I have to reach out a hand to steady myself against the edge of the machine. I'm a little dizzy. Dizzy and confused. Millennium space entropy, says Dad, shaking his head, 
unrolling the slip and reading it again. That's amazing, Carolyn. It's fantastic. You'll be nearly a thousand years old by the next millennium. Maybe you'll live to be a thousand. Just think, medical breakthroughs all the time, vastly extended lifespans. It could happen, sweetheart. It could really happen. Dad grinning crushes me to his chest again, and I can hear the rumble of his happiness somewhere deep inside. I just want you to have a long and happy life, Carolyn. A very long, long, long and happy life. But Dad, I say into the nubby wool of his sweater, where will I sit tomorrow at lunch? And that was our story. I have a special fondness for stories that make really logical extrapolations out of simple changes in a world. I think Benjamin Franklin's quote was incomplete. Nothing is certain but death, taxes, and high school cliques. Here's a promo for a fiction podcast I've recently gotten hooked on. Every dead body tells a story. A broken bone. A bruise. A jagged scar. It's all there if you know what to look for. And when you're a medical examiner in a city where magic and technology collide, the stories can get rather odd. But then who am I to complain? I'm just as dead as the rest of them. Two years ago, the vampires turned me, made me one of their own. Now I work with the police to bring down their criminal empire and pay them back for what they've done to me. Even I never guessed what was waiting for us in the shadows of this city. Evil is rising, and someone has to stop it. It's a good thing I'm not afraid of the dark. My name is Morgan Drowling. Welcome to Metamore City. Metamore City is a sci-fi fantasy podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com There's a lot to like about the Metamore City podcast. Great production values, a strong community of voices. But it's Chris Lester's story setting that really pushes a lot of my favorite buttons. He's got science fiction and magic with wild transformations and an urban gritty feel. Some of it reminds me of Shadowrun, and the rest is like a sexier Dresden Files. It's the first story universe podcast that isn't quite a novel and isn't all short fiction. I should disclose I've also got a guest role in the current work he's podcasting, Making the Cut. Anyway, check it out. You'll be glad you did. So, feedback on Escape Pod 140, Tony Frazier's mostly comedic superhero piece, Astro Monkeys. Not a lot to say, this was a big hit with everyone. Only a few down comments. Rain said, I thought the idea in itself was okay, but it came off painfully unfunny. Yosarian's grandson felt it started off solid, but fell flat in the second half. But pretty much everybody else loved it. Bo Kyer spoke for many when he said, Love me some Norm Sherman. He made the story come alive. It looks like there's a lot of crossover between Escape Pod listeners and Norm Sherman's Drabblecast. And I'm glad, because he's doing great stuff there. There was some discussion about whether the twist ending of the story was predictable, but even those who thought it was still enjoyed the telling of it. Greg commented, I have to say that I love the super genre becoming a literary genre in addition to a graphic one. Our world really needs heroes to look up to and to point to our foibles. So, 
Given the success of this, we'll keep looking for more stories that meet its exacting standards. I'm not sure if that means more superhero stories, or more stories with monkeys with flames coming out of their butts. Who knew that's what this audience demands? Escape Pod is released on a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means if you demand to share it, you can, just don't demand money or changes. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. If you like what you've heard here, please tell a friend or blog about us, and if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and you can buy collectible CDs and DVDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can find more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quote comes from author Judith Martin, who said, The invention of the teenager was a mistake. Once you identify a period of life in which people get to stay out late but don't have to pay taxes, naturally, nobody wants to live any other way. We'll see you next week. Have fun. Have fun.